Welcome back to the Black Minutes Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Weaver, and I'm here with my other host. Nate Bird, happy to be on the show as always. Yes, we are super excited for this episode. We have some awesome guests with us here today. Um, But before we get into them and their story, I'm going to do our Minutes Moment. And today I'm going to cover someone that I've wanted to cover and wanted to know more about. And as I've done the research, I've loved getting to know the information, um, but it's Ibram X. Kennedy. Um, so a little bit about him. He, his name was actually Ibram Henry Rogers when he was born. He was born in uh, on August 13th, 1982 in Queens, New York. And his parents um, were very much into the Black Power Movement, which is interesting. Um, and I'm assuming it influenced him wanting to go to an HBCU because he ended up going to FAMU where he studied um, journalism and African-American studies. And then he ended up going to get his PhD from Temple University Philly in 2010 is when he got that doctorate. Also, something really cute about his story is he got married in 2013, and him and his wife, they chose a new last name together. This is what I've been preaching for everyone to do. Um, And the last name they chose was um, Kennedy, which means loved one in Meru, which is the language of the Meru people in Kenya. is Is it Kendi or Kennedy? Kendi. Kendi, okay. Yeah, and then he um and then he also chose a new last name, new middle name, and I'm trying to it's called pronounced Zulan Lee. Hmm. I had to look how how to pronounce that because I cannot get it based off of the way it was written on the website. Um so I thought that was cool. He picked a new middle name and a last name, and I think all couples should do this. Um I don't think that we should pick the man's last name just because he's a man. It should be the best last name, or we should just create a new one if we want to have a new family name. Um, But over his time, he has taught at Boston University, where he became the founding director for the Center of Anti-Racism Research. And I think he also taught at, um, he taught uh, at American University as well for a little bit. So he's been affiliated with other schools, I'm assuming as like an adjunct professor. Um, But what he's really known for are the books that he's written, which I'm assuming um, a lot of the listeners probably know, but he has written several books and he won the National Book Award for his book, uh, Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism in You, which came out in 2020, which he also wrote with Jason Reynolds. Um, And then his memoir of, I think the most famous is How to Be an Anti-Racist in 2019 um, is what he is most known for, and he's also published a lot of academic journals written all about racism and um, anti-racism. He kind of coined that term, which is interesting to think about him changing um, his whole ideas instead of just being uh, racist. His whole thing is he uh, is helping people to see how they need to actually not just, um, they can't just be racist, but they they have to figure out a way to um, actually act. And that's what being anti-racism, being an anti-racist is. And so um, I loved his work that I've read in school. And so um, he's a great, just wanted to highlight him because um, he's quoted all over the place and um, people use his work. And uh, I just thought I wanted to highlight him. So that's, that's my menace moment for today. I love that. Good old Ibram X. Kennedy. I didn't know that he and his wife chose a new last name. That's a cool, that's a cool little tradition. I, and do you feel like that was partially because most of our last names aren't our last names? They're names of enslavers in the past. Yeah, that could definitely be part of it. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I've heard a big push about just how that is that a lot of these last names weren't really ours those of us that have enslaved ancestors Mm -hmm. and people wanting to change that or go back I mean because many of us can't even track what the last name would be but go back to maybe where some of our ancestors came from and choose a name from like West Africa so I think that's really fascinating I didn't even think about that part but that probably was definitely I mean, considering the work that he does, what he studied in school, I mean, what his whole degree is in. Um, and I would assume that that was an influence. But um, I'm also, I'm very passionate about this whole last name thing with couples. I'm, <laughs> I am very, very passionate about this. I will die on this hill. We need to get over the fact that just because, because if you ask people to their face, and I've done this with people, I'm like, oh, why do you want to do that? They're like, oh, because they don't have an answer i'm like it's literally because he's a man it's okay you can say that and um if that's the reason i'm like that's not a good reason 
you know, like, let's just be honest here. It's, um, it's built in patriarchy. It's built in ownership. And um, now we're changing it to this whole family thing. That's cool. But if your last name isn't cool, I'm not taking that. I'm just being so for real. My last <laughs> I, name is really cool. Not a lot of people have it. And if your last name can't beat mine, I don't really understand why I would change mine to yours and why you wouldn't take my name because it's definitely top tier, respectfully. I am on this soapbox with you, just so you know, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> That's cool. No, no offense to the people that have taken their their significant other's last name or husband's last name. It's no knock to you. Love it for everybody. I don't judge people, but just know why you're doing it and if you're cool with it. But don't don't just be a p- passive person in this system of oppression of taking <laughs> men's last names. If you have a dope last name, don't give it up for something <laughs> super boring and white, respectfully. Don't give it up. Well, we we actually brought our our maiden names back, um, Sinclair. And that's what we made our, oh. our business after Sinclair oh, DEI okay. Consulting. That's so a, we that's a cool last name, though. Girls all growing yeah. up. Oh, and, and that's cute. We, in, in work, we use it quite often. I mean, we did a, a little thing for People TV and we both just used Sinclair. So, you know, bring ah, it back. Love that. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. That's cool. yeah. Well, all right. So jumping into it, why don't y'all tell us a little bit about uh, your consulting firm and about Let's Talk Sis and how you got started. And then we'll jump into, we'll talk about like what you've been doing, what you're currently doing, all that good stuff. That's great. Yeah, well, Lexus usually answers first. And I'm surprised. <laughs> well, I was I'm like t- waiting for you. I'm surprised <laughs> I'm talking. We usually have this like, you know, whole back and forth thing. Anyway, do you want to go? Sure. Okay. So <laughs> we were stay-at-home moms for the most part. We had our own little side hustles. I was working with the mental wellness company. Shantae was teaching at Brigham Young University. And in the height of 2020, we got asked to do an interview for just like a little local platform. platform. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a church, kind of an LDS church-based platform. They just wanted to talk about the experiences that we had had growing up, growing up in Utah. They wanted to talk about Just, I mean, this is at the height of 2020 when there's so much just racial feeling. People are trying to process things. There are all of these things that are playing out that we're seeing and witnessing. And there's just a lot of feelings. And so when we were first asked, we were like, no, we actually don't really want to do this right now. You know, and we didn't really feel safe either. There was just, this was right after George Floyd's passing and it just felt too vulnerable to go on and talk about these things. So we turned it down and they kept asking and it was a good friend of ours and they're like, you know, you can do it together. You can kind of guide the conversation. So we did it. We did it. We and did it was it. supposed to be 30 minutes and it ended up being a 90 minute interview with 20,000 wow. live views. So we had wow. 20,000 people all over. There were people in Ireland, yeah. Canada, just really engaged. We were getting so many like questions And it was a really great conversation. So at the end of the conversation, the hostess said, "Um, where can they find you if they want to continue this conversation? And we're like, what? We don't really have any place. And we didn't want to go to our own social media accounts that were just pictures of our kids. So quickly, I get on Instagram and I make this account called Let's Talk Sis. She literally looked up at me and said, we're sisters. We talk about everything. Can we just call ourselves Let's Talk Sis? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we had I no that. thought that anything was going to happen. I love that. <laughs> and you have to understand too, in real time, we are always like yelling, debating everything. Yeah. Like we will play devil's advocate. Sometimes one of us will take one side, the other, the other side. So any social issue or anything concerning race and politics, we're, we're having like a conversation. It out. Yeah. So we thought, you know, maybe we'll let people into some of those conversations. If people want to ask a question, here's a separate account that we can keep pretty private. We won't put a lot of our family life on there. Yeah. And that was, you know, we did that interview like mid morning. So by the time we went to bed that night, I think we had like 300 followers and we thought, well, I mean, we better say something like we might as well make a video or put a post. Right. (laughs) And we did not even know how to use Instagram. You guys, we had to like YouTube 
how to make a video and like post it. How to use oh, I'm so dead. We're Facebook people, you guys. Oh. Yeah, we're like in that Facebook world and we've been stay-at-home moms and the only things we put on Instagram were just like, we're doing it for the chat books. We wanted to have pictures of our kids. Later. It was literally like scrapbooking, like a photo album. So anyway, we posted this little so video. Funny. That's, I mean, that's so funny. <laughs> I know, isn't it funny? It's giving like it's giving mom for real. Like it's like I just upload pictures of my kids. That's that's so cute. Love it. Yeah, we're mo- like moms through and through. Really, the past decade of our life. That's what we've been doing. And so anyway, we made a little video introducing ourselves, and then we came up with this little challenge where it was just kind of like telling everyone to just take a step back, get their feelings and emotions in check, and let's start a conversation because it was just chaos. It was right around the time, like black squares. And if you're not doing a black square, and if you are- and Oh, you know not the black means. square. I forgot about that time. Yeah, <laughs> so, so it's during Woo! all that. <laughs> that a lot of like, cause you guys, okay. People who are in Utah need to understand that Utah is like the biggest social media women entrepreneur world yes like in the nation of women who maybe started on instagram like a decade ago and now have full-fledged businesses own Mm -hmm. companies brands but it really they used instagram to really grow a following and then most of them created like a brand and a business off of that so utah is very well known for that and we had some of those bigger like utah women influencers who i think were feeling like we don't know where to go but then we appear and they're like, okay, let's kind of watch and let's learn here. So people started sharing our account. So within this about- all within like 24 hours. Yeah. I think it was the next afternoon that Alexis texted me and she's like, look at our account. And I was like, oh, wow, 7,000 in 24 hours. That's, That's a lot. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Instagram even locked us out because it looked like fake growth mm-hmm. because we were interacting and responding to DMs so quickly. And there's two of us that it really looked fake. Yeah. So mm. we're sitting here at this moment and we're just like, okay, apparently people want to have this conversation. We feel like we had some great talking points because black biracial, we grew up in Utah, raised by our white mother. We feel like we learned at a young age to kind of speak this language mm-hmm. and explain things maybe from a perspective of people in our community that maybe needed it in a different way. And we really started with like a beginning beginners conversation. Yeah. You know, breaking down terms that people were maybe unsure of or had different ideas about. And both Alexis and I were still nervous. Like, do we put ourselves out there? Do we put our faces out there on the internet behind these really difficult topics? And so we started out kind of trying to help parents have these introductory conversations in their home with their kids. And Alexis's children had experienced a lot of harmful racial bullying at young ages. And so it was something that we felt really confident in speaking to. And we knew that there was a problem. We knew that we could really jump in in that capacity. And that really took off so fast. Yes. Well, and I think my perspective, being married to a Black man, Shantae, a white man and our children having very different experiences, even though Mm. we grew up so much the same, that it's an interesting touch point because we're not making these huge, big statements. We're talking about our life. Like these are things that we live. These are conversations that I have with my kids. These are conversations that Shantae has with her kids, you know, and we're, we're opening up this conversation that I think people who haven't experienced racism will argue and say, oh, that was just a one-time encounter was an isolated incident. And here we are telling our life story. I'm telling about my white assuming children that have never experienced anything and their moms are confused as twins, but yet because of our children's skin color, the disparity is massive. And so as we're just telling our personal stories, I think it really took out that defense mode for people because they're just hearing our story, Hmm. you know? Well, and I think approaching it is like, hey, here's some conversations you can have with your children. We started recognizing that the majority of the people that were coming to us, they needed that level of an introductory conversation. They needed definitions. They needed historical context. And with politics, I think then and even now, sometimes it creates double meaning of some of these terms. So even though some of these terms are like very academic, then you bring in 
politics and different things. And it becomes a word can mean one thing to one group of people and something else. And we were taking the time to acknowledge that and to talk about it and just sharing resources and stuff. So we grew really quickly. And our first year, we did everything, you know, where it was like a kid at a candy store. Anyone who asked us to show up, to speak, to be on a podcast, we did to it. host something, yeah. we did it. And probably somewhere in our first year, we were like, wait, this is not sustainable. And we don't think this is the direction that we want to go. We don't want to just be like public figures show up and host things. Mm. Like we want to do something more. And with I think just having some good mentors in our life that had really successful businesses and could give us some insight. We just started having a lot of conversation. And I think some people just opened, just opened our eyes to like, what do you want to do? If there was a problem you could solve, then what problem would you want to solve? And we felt like all of our experience in our first year helped us recognize that there was a need for people to understand the social and the emotional and cultural shifting that was required for sustainable diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. Mm -hmm. And we were being called into companies where it was always damage control. There was always a crisis, mm -hmm. something that happened, and it wasn't enough time to really shift individuals' perceptions and expand their view or really change a culture in a corporation or a work environment. And so we're like, if we could do anything, that's where we wanna be and that's mm -hmm. what we wanna do. But that, you guys, that is a tough spot to be in. And we yep. are now learning, Yeah, it's a lot of psychological safety and a lot of breaking it down really simple. And you really have to know where people are to know where you can really take them. So that's when our consulting firm, Sinclair Consulting, kind of came about is we're like, we think that there is an easy, simple way to do this. We have these points that we feel like keep coming up in every company we work with, organization, school. If we could go in and take people on a journey, starting with these principles and building from the ground up, we feel like that's more effective than us always rushing in for damage control. And so that is where we shifted and it's been hard because we're not on social media as much. Mm -hmm. We still mm -hmm. want to do more on our account, but it's just, we can't do everything at the same time. So then we're right. strategy right. and like, okay, let's build this part and then we'll come back and build this out on social media. But it's been a big journey and a huge learning yeah. experience now doing this in more companies and corporations. And it's been a little terrifying but we've learned a lot. I feel like we've been baptized by fire. <laughs> it's true. Corporate world is no joke. And like, I mean, I'm getting my introduction in doing DEI in the corporate world. And it's just very different. And it's way more. In consultants, you guys have a better life um, because you kind of get to do your thing and say bye, um, which is nice, you know, so you yeah. can be a little more like. Um, abrasive than um, as an in-house, you know, DEI person. Um, but it's very different and it's crazy stuff that you would think people would be ready for. Even in like New York City, um, they are not. Right. At the corporate yeah. level. No, I mean, I that's interesting that you say that, Rachel, because, you know, we've worked with, you know, an international company, but most of the companies we work with are more Utah based. Mm. And so it is, we're fascinated sometimes to get a gauge on what is it like? And can you hear us? Yeah. We yes. Can. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what is it like outside of Utah? You know, because honestly in Utah, unless people have had experience in a more diverse place or community, most of what they're around is very white with very European background yeah. and history. And then in Utah, you have kind of the different layer with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that mm -hmm. Mountain West pioneer ancestry. So there's a lot of conversation that I feel like hap doesn't happen in Utah that may happen in areas with more of a diverse population. But I really, it's fascinating what you said that even in places like New York, there's people in all different areas of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very different. And like at the end of the day, that's something that I'm learning 
this is very DEI centric. Um, at the end of the day, corporate America is a bunch of old white people who are, you know, products of their time at the end of the day. And respectfully, no matter how progressive they pretend to be, unless they are, were the hippies, you know, the people yeah. who were like protesting the Vietnam War, even if they were raised in a more air quote progressive environment, they still hold on to certain things about even professionalism, right? Rooted in white supremacy, things like that. And what does it mean to really be your authentic self? Do you really want black people to be their authentic selves? Do you want, you say that, but do you want that as like a 60 year old executive chief officer of this department? Do you really want that? Uh, you know what I mean? Are you really advocating for that through your behavior? You know? And so it's, um, it's very interesting. Um, working in DEI, even in, again, I work for a New York-based company with all these New York people who you think are just very progressive, and in certain ways, yes, but in other ways, it's like, I don't know why this is hard for you. I mean, it's interesting because racism essentially built into the founding of this country, right? And as we see Mm -hmm. the gradual shifts, you know, generation to generation, the, the generation, the specific generation that you're speaking of, Rachel, really did live in a very distinct hierarchy with the white male sitting at the top. And I think idealistically, the viewpoint changes and shifts as, you know, we want everyone to, to have equality and we want to implement equity, but it's, it's almost like it's built into their core beliefs and values, that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So when that shift takes place and we see those actual things happening, it shakes people in a way like, well, actually, wait, hold on. Maybe that's not what I wanted, you know? No, literally. Yeah. Well, and I feel like the, like, the more we've been doing this, I think we're leaning more and more into just coming kind of from a psychological perspective because this is huge changing. Oh. You know, like if you're on one-on-one therapy and you are rehashing your whole life, what you were taught, what you knew, your experiences, like that's some heavy stuff. And obviously the DEI space, you can't do that with everyone. Yeah. But I feel like that sometimes helps me to think about like those big patterns. And when we're focusing like in the area that we really focus on that social and emotional shifting, it's a lot of inner and personal work. And it's hard because there even is sometimes those feelings of like, oh, wow, I didn't know. And now I can see in the past that I had very biased views and those could have harmed or hurt people. Mm-hmm. And I've passed that on to my children or my family. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that takes some reconciling, you know, that's some hard stuff to recognize. And, and then I think the other layer too is politics. You guys, it is crazy. Oh, you guys oh. are young. It's messy. But we've never seen anything like this. And when most people's entry point into this conversation is political, which I understand mm. why race is political. Like I'm not debating that. But when you get just, I don't know, more theories and uh, I don't even know, just like extreme stuff, it yeah. makes this conversation harder and harder. And then people feel like, well, that's going against my values or my politics. And it's harder to do that inner work, mm-hmm. you know? I feel like I, I kind of had this theory like a couple of years ago, and I actually like gave a speech on it in one of my classes at BYU. But I talked about how people in Utah are like Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched it, but I feel like if you took oh, yes. if you took Michael Scott and you added a MAGA hat, that's basically like the entire <laughs> state of Utah is just like people who just yeah. don't quite get it. Yeah. And then but then you add like that layer of like conservatism or like political political obtuseness. I don't know if that's a word, but you add that and then you just you just get a really interesting dynamic because it's like people who should know better, but don't really know better. And then on top of that, they also have like this layer of religion and politics that makes it difficult to break through those layers and help them understand. Yeah. And there's that whole I love that Michael Scott analogy. It's like his. (laughs) his diversity day, you know, where yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. how much harm can you actually do? But yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's just things like that. So, I mean, y'all are, y'all are brave for, for being out here in these streets. And I guess we're out here too, but well, you are, you, <laughs> I was are. Like, you guys are out here. And I think it it's a lot of us coming in at different entry points. Yeah, um, it yeah. really does. And like being in the Utah streets, it's very different. Like, <clears throat> 
that's what I applaud you for, you know, like working with the people in Utah respectfully. And we do it in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do doing DEI consulting and with these businesses in this state would be a challenge. And the check would have to be very good for me to um, <laughs> sign up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, it has to be worth the stress, you know, that mm-hmm. I would feel and the and I've done it basically for free. So I don't know what that says about me anyway. But <laughs> yeah, so I just yeah i just know like in a corporate setting i know how i feel working in new york working for new york people uh, as a black woman doing dei i can only imagine what that could feel like you know and i have diverse audiences that i'm working with or more accepting more diverse experiences you know that sounds so terrible to say but the people that i work with have more diverse experiences compared to maybe the audiences you've worked with sorry i'm going down the dei practitioner rabbit hole um um, i just i'm just very fascinated by this so i'll tell you though it's interesting because like you said here we're working with a lot of people who haven't had these lived experiences and so alexis and i kind of open up a window to our own personal lives and our own experiences as we train, because even though our goal is really a lot of recognizing and recovery and things like that, if people don't, they don't know what they don't know. And so we do share a lot of our lives. And I think what we've found is that is a heavy weight when you're opening up these emotional, really difficult experiences over and over and over again, as a means to teach people you feel that and our gray hairs on our head tell you that it is not, it is not an easy walk. Yeah. Well, and in some ways too, like this is the community we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And I think even as kids, we didn't recognize how we had to learn how to explain things to people in a way that they understood at a very young age. And I even remember I was in elementary school And some of the girls at school started referring to me as the black girl. And it would bother me because I'm like, I have a name. And I just felt like no one else was being called the this girl or the girl with the pink shirt. And so I remember sitting my friends down at the piano and being like, these are the white keys. These are the black keys. Does my skin look like the black keys? And they're like, no. And I said, like, Black is like my race, but that's like, you can call me by my name. And I don't like it when you just say the Black girl, when you know me and you know my name. And so for some reason, that little visual I thought was a great idea (laughs) as a kid (laughs) is trying to explain to them, because now I have different words in a different vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I I can say like, hey, that actually feels dehumanizing mm. that you know my name and you're not using it. Yeah. And it feels different because you're not referring to anyone else in our group that way except me. Yeah. But as a kid, we didn't have that language and vocabulary. Right. So we were trying to figure this out in real time. And I think that, yeah, what Shantae said is so true. It is exhausting when you're using some of your own experiences to teach But then also, I feel like this is our family. This is our community. Like, we've been having these conversations our whole life. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, it feels like, well, we should be having these. Guess the more we can have with it one time, the better. It is actually better (laughs) for us. And that's even when we started our platform. We're like, so many friends and family want to engage one-on-one. But let's just do it here for everyone. Yeah. So... um. I have a question for you, Nate. Is that okay if I ask? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, So kind of knowing more about you guys' experience living here and now raising, you know, the next generation uh, here, um, your your children, what has that experience been like for you guys personally, just like either with yourself growing up, being an adult, um, and and with your children, like they're seeing them experience things maybe similar or different than what you experienced growing up? I'll tell you, I honestly, I mean, because like we said earlier, Alexis and I grew up almost parallel lives, you know, I'm two years younger. And so put us a little bit behind, but we were so close. I ended up skipping a grade just to be in high school with her. And, you know, you guys, that's, I love that for you guys. You guys, (laughs) you're me and my sister. That's why I'm like, we're like a year apart. So I I love this. This is so cute. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, but but we just, you know, I don't think we realized 
the differences that our children would experience. And when I can say my children have experienced nothing, nothing negative, except maybe that people assume they're adopted because their mom's black. Um, other outside of that, like they go to school and I have zero worries for them, zero concerns. They're not those extra layered things that I have to teach them to keep them safe. They just go and do. And I am like, what, what privileged world am I living in? Like you almost feel a guilt because you can't give that same thing to to my nieces and nephews, you know, mm. and the fears I have for my nephews and the things I see my sister that she needs to teach them that they have to know and understand. I mean, I, it almost takes my breath away to think I had the opportunity to make the choice when to teach my oldest son about the N word. I got to choose that. Mm. He didn't experience that at school. And, and for Alexis, that's not a choice. And so I think it's been, it's really rocked my world to see this massive, massive disparity, but it's made, I think, my commitment and my fight even stronger times I want to give up. And I'm like, no, like my nieces and nephews can't go to school and feel safe. Like what it's not, it's, it's not acceptable. And so for me, that's really my motivation behind what, what we do, but I'll let Alexis speak to some of her experiences. Well, I feel like even Shantae and I growing up being light-skinned females, mm. it was different than even the experience I've seen my Black husband have. So I feel like yeah. even some of the way I teach is from a place of even myself mm. seeing and learning and recognizing, even though I'd experienced racism mm. at a young age, it still was more intensified and looked very different when I started dating Brandon and married him and could see some of the experiences he was having, I could even recognize my own privileges as a light-skinned black female. And I feel like as children, you know, there were a lot of survival things that we did that we didn't even recognize as adults. We're actually trying to keep us safe, but now we can see, oh my goodness, like that's why we did that. So I feel like both Shantae and I were able to really fly well under the exotic kind of label. Mm. So because our father is from Jamaica and even though our ancestors were still enslaved, that Jamaica piece, I noticed when I said my dad's black, people reacted differently than when I said my dad's from Jamaica versus my dad's black. Interesting. Because Jamaica then was associated with Bob Marley. It was a very like, it love, get right. high, not reggae. to mention they think of cruises and vacations yes. and resorts and, oh, it's this beautiful island mm. and they think of in American enslavement, right. Black Americans, African Americans, all with this negative context that's been placed on it. And so that was one thing that I noticed Shantae and I would kind of do because it kept us protected yeah. where we were a little more exotic. And I even remember one time, like a group of ladies saying like, why isn't your hair like nappy and kinky like other black girls? Your hair is so pretty and nice. And they were like touching my hair. And I remember at that moment, just really recognizing that me distancing my proximity from blackness mm. was not helping anything because I felt offended. Like they were trying to give me a compliment but right. say yours is better than other black people. But the way that they said that I could feel those feelings towards black people. Yeah. And for some reason I was the exception mm -hmm. and that felt awful to me. And I think that just seeing maybe things when we were younger, you guys feel like destiny's child <laughs> was big when we were growing up and then people started kind of liking black girls a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of came in that era where it started being a little more popular and I feel like some of our experiences, we were really protected because we were involved. We were overachievers. We, the way we spoke and presented ourselves was very white. And we knew the culture. We knew how to say things in a way that would make us a little bit safer. And then I feel like fast forward to like marriage and life and even experiences, traveling and seeing different things we started recognizing those experiences and even some of the things that were like, oh, was that a microaggression? Do you know what I mean? It just gives you a vocabulary. And then with 
my children, I feel like having to help and support them through some of the things that they have experienced at such a young age has really been hard. And we question ourselves daily, is raising our Black children in Utah psychologically damaging? And will we ever be able to recover from that? Mm. Yeah. And it's hard because I don't feel like it was a conscious choice. We want to raise our children in Utah. It was more of, we attended BYU, a lot of our contacts, job opportunities, things were here. We left for a little bit. We came back for a job. We didn't know if it would be very long, but opportunities have continued for my husband. And we feel like he's in a good place right now. But then too, what does that mean for our family? Mm. And I feel like getting involved and making a difference is not enough because it's just, there's not enough time to create the safety in the schools that our black children need in Utah for me to feel comfortable keeping them there in real time and knowing we can't do enough fast enough. And I think even having our platform now too, we get to hear even more of when something happens, people reach out and they say, help, how do we handle the situation at the school? And we're doing a lot of the stuff in real time and still trying to show up and train companies and be on social media. And it's hard. And I do think that our difference, just experiences since marriage, Shantae can speak to how to teach your children how to be an ally. And I think I can speak to how to help your children understand who they are, where they came from, hold their head high, not shrink in those situations. And that's the thing that I feel so strongly about is Black children to be able to know who they are and be able to stand tall and you almost have to arm them. Like I prep with my kids, like, what do you say in this situation? Mm. Because I don't want them to walk away and shrink and cower. I want them to stand tall. And I like, we even do these visualizations of like words can't penetrate us and let them bounce off. And it's more of a representation of the other person. Mm. But at the end of the day, no matter how much I teach them, I can't counter the things that they hear and that are Mm. said to them. And that is where I feel stuck all the time and I feel guilt and I feel concern Mm -hmm. and what I have to create in terms of a community and opportunities for them. It's a lot of work. And, and the work I think is, is on all of our shoulders. Like for me, I'm teaching my son, okay, here's, here's what the N word means. And here's exactly what you do when you hear it. This is your plan of action. This is how we interrupt racism. This is all of the all of the many ways racism can look like. These are what microaggression sounds like. This is how you interrupt that. I think that's every every parent with white kids, you have to do that because most of these problems are happening to Alexis's kids and they're hearing things and some of them do understand the gravity of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And some of them honestly don't. They've just overheard it and they just want to say something. Yep. And it's like, if we're not having the conversations in our homes and teaching our kids, like, this is never acceptable. And then we have to have these consistent consequences at school that mm-hmm. match the offense. Yep. And so that's not happening either. So kids are getting away with it on all different levels. And I just think all of us as parents we're responsible and we have to be teaching our kids. I mean, if Alexis's kids have to be hear the N word at five years old, then my kids better know what it means so that they can stand up and interrupt that, you know? Amen. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we've got a few people that have, that have reached out to us recently talking about things that they've experienced. Um, There's a mother right now who emailed us and um, she was talking about, you know, things that's happened to her her children where they've been racially profiled by people at school uh, they've been bullied and then accused of you know when they defended themselves they were accused of being the aggressors kid lied mm-hmm. about you know what had been done to him and got the police involved and the police have racially profiled these kids and you know it's just things like this that are happening um, in utah that just need to get talked about more so you know the work that y'all are doing and and the education that you're doing where you're just educating your children and then encouraging other people to do the same, I think is extremely important because the thing is that those kids who are doing all of these things now, it's not going to get any better. They're going to, you know, right. the longer that they get away with it and the more that they're empowered by their teachers and by their administrators, and they're just going to grow up and they're going to learn how to hide it better. 
mm-hmm. because you have mm-hmm. to do that, you know, because they're going to be afraid of, quote unquote, getting canceled. Right. So they learn how to hide it. But then they get into these positions of leadership in the church, positions of leadership at different companies. And then it just continues to perpetuate it. But if you teach them at an early age, then when they get into those positions, they have the tools to actually make yeah. their environment better as opposed to contributing to, you know, to its detriment and making it a worse place for black people to exist. So, yeah, and- I agree. We really have to like shift this generation and mm-hmm. how they interpret things, how they act, how they react, all of that. Because, you know, Alexis and I, it's crazy to think about like our mom, you know, was alive during we're one generation away from the civil rights movement. You know right. what I mean? Right. Alexis and I, people act ago. like, oh, just get over it. It was so long ago. No, actually, it, it wasn't yeah. like that was our mother's generation. And so, you know. We just have to keep every generation has to shift more and and greater. And I think one thing we recognize, which we kind of knew this growing up in Utah, but I think having our platform helped us even understand it more, is that people don't know where to start. They don't even know how to have the conversation with their kids. And when you ask them about like, you know, did your mom ever teach you about this growing up or your dad? And they're like, no, we'd ask questions and they shush us so we thought it was bad talking Mm. about it and so it's really like that's pretty ground level stuff where you really have to start the conversation give people tools give them information resources and it's just it's a big undertaking but it's so so important if we're going to figure out how to really see each other and work with each other and I don't know it's just important on every level for all of us and I think belonging is just really kind of the basic entry point of creating that type of an environment because the research just shows people perform better, thrive better, all of these different things when there is that feeling of belonging. And I really feel like in Utah, it is created for one predominant group to feel like they belong. And that's hard to shift and change, but that's kind of what it is. Well, and that's what I was going to say, like, Utah, the biggest disservice is like, you know, realistically, when people will leave this place, the United States is just becoming more and more diverse, you know, Mm -hmm. with more immigrants coming more, you know, interracial marriage, interethnic marriages, right? It's just, it's becoming more diverse. And Utah, unfortunately, is not, I mean, it's slowly changing the demographics of the state, but not at the rate of the rest of the country. And children, if they grow up here, they are just in for a root awakening when they experience a different place, you know, that they are not the majority or that in some, in some places you are not the majority. Go to New York City, you know, there are a lot of white people, but you will also realize there are a lot of people who do not look like me and who, who have not experienced life the way I have. And um, my life is not the narrative or like the standard for everyone else. And they they need to adjust to that. And there's without that exposure or that, you know, personal experience, if kids don't go to school with kids that have a different religion than them, you know, you're not growing up and experiencing friends mm-hmm. that don't go to church with you. You know, you're not experiencing friends that celebrate different holidays than you. You're not experiencing friends whose parents don't look like you. Those types of things, like they are not prepared for what the rest of the world looks like, um, which contributes to people's stunted growth and like progress in being, just not a terrible person and mm-hmm. trying to pass these bills about I'll, keeping. Listen, and, I was just getting ready to ask about that. You know, not contributing to this terrible, like, polarization that's happening within our po- political world right now right. and trying to pass bills like they are in Florida that will basically, you know, I just saw a recent one that is going to basically eradicate um, black, uh, history. black history, but also, like, impact black fraternities and sororities just because i'm a part of one so i was reading something yes it will impact yes so like all of these hbcus so like famu and these other schools like Mm -hmm. it will impact the sororities and fraternities and their affiliations with the schools not just black but also like the multicultural sororities and fraternities as well which like what like how is this impacting this as well and so it's just um Anyhow, sorry, that's me getting on a soapbox for another time, but we, we don't need more of those people, okay? We need we need the opposite. <laughs> I agree. I absolutely well, agree. It's interesting because I think one thing we talk about a lot in our trainings is we try to help people see the benefits of this because 
not everyone is going to come into it thinking it's how to be a better person and to be like a contributing citizen and to hold humanity at, you know, the highest place. Not everyone's going to buy into it that way. And we do have to sometimes talk about like even the effects on our economy, like even money making that kind of talk, because really that research is there too. And it's so sad that we can't just come into this that this is how to be a good person. And even the golden rule, you know, doing unto others as we would have others do to you. But some people have to see the economic effects. And I think Utah in particular, it's hard for some of these big companies to recruit and to bring in diversity in the tech world in different places, because then their kids come here and go to Utah schools and they can't thrive. Mm -hmm. And so you really can see that economical piece that for some of these companies to grow you really have to be able to recruit nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. And so the community here does have an impact on that economic growth. And even for companies to just perform at better rates, be more profitable, bringing more people in, more perspectives, that's important too. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, I don't know, there's just so many parts and pieces of it that I'm so passionate about. But I feel like when we train, we have to kind of, offer this whole smorgasbord right, right, of entry right. points because, you know, everyone thinks different and sometimes it will click to them in a different way. Right. That makes sense. So, so to close it out, if you, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to consolidate this, uh, you know, basically for our listeners, for those that have kids, for those that don't, if you could just give like three things to do where they can start because you said that a lot of people just don't even know where to start so when it comes to having these conversations about race when it comes to working on being an anti-racist what are three things that people can do just to get started that's a great question and i think we should answer for non-black children and black children yeah i think so i think so because you know it it's really different and a lot of times like alexis said we're white families are kind of avoiding the conversation Mm -hmm. feels uncomfortable. We don't know how to have it. And so our advice is you have to have it. First of all, kids are noticing the differences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the world around them as young as six months, like really making those observations Mm -hmm. and silence is the loudest teacher. So when we're not teaching kids make assumptions, Oh, my parents won't talk about this. Well, this must be bad. They must not like black people. They must not, you know, they make those assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so I think our very first thing, like if, if for white children is we have to normalize difference. We have to make that seem as different as, I mean, it's normal that not every flower is the same color. And we talk about that in a really comfortable way. We can look at nature around us and all the diversity of nature. And we're excited to teach our kids about that. We're taking them out on walks at 18 months and pointing it out and showing them the beauty behind it. And when it comes to diversity of humans and culture and ethnicity and race, we shy away and it becomes this, no, we don't discuss that. And so when it's normal, when difference is normal, kids are so much less likely to racially bully, to, you know, to have these negative right. encounters with other children because it's how the world is. Right. And they start to, they can accept other religions, other cultures. I mean, there's so many aspects to diversity, but we have to normalize all of that in their, in their little worlds. And I think as adults, when we're curious and excited about that difference, that is the best entry entry point for our kids. And I think one thing where we kind of start in the conversation is we talk a lot about like melanin and geography and even family history, where your ancestors have come from. And I feel like that's important for Black children and non-Black children, because when you can really see where you came from and your ancestors, it really does make you more excited and accepting of other people's ancestors. Yes, kids are yeah. really matter-of-fact thinkers. It's very interesting. Like you tell them something, they're like, okay, well, just tell me why. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, for my kids, your skin is lighter because daddy's family's from Switzerland and that's further from the equator and they didn't need as much melanin, right? And mommy's family came from Africa and the melanin is a protector from the sun. And it's just like, oh yeah, cool, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's <laughs> kids all are of a very sudden logical. This, 
They yes. are. They're so logical. They'll make you feel stupid too, though, because of yeah. how logical they are. You know, it's like, well, don't point it out like that. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. when they point out, you know, the way that we get as adults get all like, uh, yes. and like, and then they're like, hmm, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to let him ask the questions it's and sometimes it. say the awkward things because then you know how they're thinking and you can and respond. It's interesting because we apply our adult biases to our kids mm-hmm. as if they're thinking of it through a biased lens and they're not. And so when we hush them, when they have questions, it's actually it's it's contributing to the bias that they're going to be developing into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So we just have to open their world up and help them really have this expansive view Well, and I think that just through books and music and traveling, and I know not everyone has the opportunity or the privileges to travel, but I feel like even when we take little staycations or little trips with our kids, like we look up the history of the land and we talk about the people that were on this land and we talk about different things that maybe happen. And I feel like when our kids are just more connected to where they are, their space, ancestors, people that came before us and we're honoring it, we're interested, we're curious. That's so powerful for all children. And I feel like for my black children, I know that I'm doing them a disservice if I am not teaching them about our history, who we are, where we came from, our ancestors and the strengths and the things that we have developed because of that. And that is something that I feel like we learned growing up in our European ancestry family with that background is we were always hearing the stories and we were hearing the connections of the, oh, you have this trait and this talent, like your great, great grandma. And I feel like we, as black people in the United States, we don't get to hear those stories because many of them have been taken from us and we don't know them or they weren't written or they're oral stories. And I think making those connections for your children is really powerful about who they are and what they believe that they can do. Because if we just leave it to the world around us, then it depends on is there representation? What is being said or taught? And we have to really invest in that. So I think that having these conversations at a young age and also really investing in your children and who they are, where they came from and that connection with other people and those differences right. is just a really good starting place. Yeah. So, so we, we normalize those differences and then we embrace them. And so just like Alexis said, I mean, if you take your kids to a Mexican restaurant, well, where does this food come from? Let's talk about the culture. Let's talk about the music. Let's talk about the language and really helping them understand and see the beauty behind all of these differences. And is, not just be consumers. You right, know? It's, it's, yeah. so, it's so powerful. And also I think, when we learn about, especially here in Utah, when, when they touch upon Black history in schools, they touch upon enslavement, period. And so I think we all have the responsibility to know this vast history and to know the resilience and the power behind a people that, that were taken. They were kings and queens in Africa, you know, this really powerful history. And that is for all of us to know and for all of us to share. And so I think as we're teaching our kids to really embrace these other cultures and places that when they're sitting in school and they're learning about this tiny little seed, this tiny little portion of a certain part of history, they're less likely to apply it in a negative way. And we do see that play out a lot in Utah schools. They learn about enslavement and then they start saying, well, you can't play with me, you're a slave or this or that kind of thing. And it's like, all right, well, we have work to do at home so they can understand that it's so much more than this because they're not going to get it at school. And that is our responsibility as parents to talk about this beautiful history of all people, not just this one tiny little. And at school, that's a whole other thing. But yeah. I know. So, so, <laughs> so step one, just to kind of, yeah. like, just to, to kind of like sum it up. So step one, you would say is just to like normalize conversations yeah. around race. Yes, normalize diversity, talk about melanin, understand why why we come from different places and then to embrace diversity, help kids love, you know, different different people from different places, help them learn to see those differences are really exciting. And I, I also think it's important for kids to see heroes and heroines and stories that look different than them. Because when all Disney princesses were white, we believed that that was the only way, you know, to be that, have that royalty. And so I think we have to expand their books 
and their art and their media, all of the things that they consume need to be more diverse, you know? Absolutely. So what's step two and three? If you have <laughs> I don't so, know. We could talk so, you, so, okay. I feel like getting curious is probably step two okay. and you have to learn yourself. Because when I am reading a book or listening to a podcast, I'm telling my kids that in real time. Mm. Like, guess what mommy learned? And did you know this? And did you know that? Mm. So when I am invested in learning, it can it just makes natural conversations with them. And then I think it's also kind of the third step is that transition into creating, because of what we know, we do and we act differently. And I think that's the third step is it's- creating that connection with action that we show up, we speak out, we try to make a difference in our circle. We try to expand, to let people in, you know, how to interrupt racism, how to stand up for people and just different things like that. And still allowing people to have their own voice. And I think that curiosity piece is really important because to have the conversation with your children, how do we interrupt racism? How do, you know, sometimes it's even role-playing with kids you have to educate yourself on things. And so it is important to make sure, you know, read a few books, listen to the podcasts, really try and open up your understanding of historical context and how that applies now. And then you can kind of give your kids these age appropriate bits and pieces. So they're learning and growing alongside you. So. I love that. I love that. love that. So I got it written down because I want to remember this. Step one. normalize differences around race step two get curious and learn for yourself and step three connect knowledge to action is that a good way to like sum it all yes good job i love it dynamic duo yes truly this is yes this has been amazing a wonderful conversation you guys are great i feel like we could keep talking for hours this could be be so much longer record and yes exactly you guys are just great and i'm like okay when you guys expand your dei consulting hire me on um as a person um (laughs) love to join um as i get more experience under my belt in the corporate world you know um (laughs) but uh this is great and so nate do you want to move into our recommendations portion yeah absolutely absolutely. do you want to go first nate or do you want me to you've gone first the past couple of episodes i've realized i could go first yeah go ahead i'm not (laughs) okay it's just i feel like it's a pressure you know so (laughs) i'm trying to relieve the pressure a little bit of making you go first um Okay, my recommendation for the the week. I just saw all three Creed movies like mm-hmm. on one day. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> yeah, so I recommend watching those. They're pretty good. They're good. Um, I had never seen the first. I went and saw the third before I saw the others. Then okay. I saw the two, and then I went and saw the third again. So, um, yeah, that's my recommendation to watch them or to go see Creed three. Mm-hmm. Um, go support Michael B. Jordan in the box office. Jonathan yeah, Majors, Jonathan Majors too. Well, and like, yes, it was a great movie about just emotion, and mm-hmm. um, I thought it brought up some great topics as well. Um, yeah. The DEI person in me was like, "Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. they're including things about like um, deaf people." Yeah, and the representation just, it was, was amazing. It was so good, and it was so natural too. Mm-hmm. Like and, it wasn't yeah. like a big deal, you know. It wasn't right. like, "Oh my gosh," it was just like, "This is who she is," and um, this is how life is when you, you know, are hard of hearing. And it was. I love that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was great. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. My recommendation for this week. So, a, a long time ago, probably like um, no, not quite a year, but many, many months ago, we had Sebastian on the podcast, and I believe that he recommended um, that you get a you get you download the app Libby and you plug your library card in there oh, yes. and just check out books, right? So, I actually finally took that recommendation. And I've listened to a couple books since, but I highly recommend checking out Robin D'Angelo's new book, Nice Racism. I think it applies a lot in Utah. Um, for those of you who may not know, she wrote uh, White Fragility. Yes. Uh, which is a very good book. It is very candid and it's written by a white woman who is talking to white people about white fragility. And so, um, you know, she is very honest in a way that a lot of black people are unable to be in most spaces um and you know that and she she highlights that privilege that she has to be able to talk candidly about those things but she also talks about the difficulty that she's had in facilitating conversations around that so basically nice racism is a follow-up to that book where she talks specifically 
about the harm that is perpetuated by white people who claim to be progressive. And she talks about how progressive racism is actually more harmful than like classic or old fashioned racism. Um, and she goes into depth about that. It's a very interesting read. I highly recommend it. I would check it out. Um, and she also points out, you know, that um, she knows that she's not the first to say these things. And she, you know, she highlights Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde mm. and, and several other authors. And she's like, look, I know I'm not the first person to say this. I, you know, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm not doing anything special here, but I'm just like using my platform and my ability to get into spaces that a lot of people of color are not able to get into or not able to communicate properly. And I'm using my privilege to be able to do that. So um, I appreciate her for that. So check out the book, Nice Racism by Robin D'Angelo. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to check that Me out. Me too. Um, it's a good one. And White Fragility is good too. That's the prequel, so to speak. But they're both good. We have a bunch of our books sitting right here on our desk. We have so many more more children's books than anything, but we have all the the good ones too. Have you guys read Cast? No. Oh, you guys. Oh, I like uh, want to talk about it with so many people. And it's a little bit more on the academic side. I know what you're talking about. C A S T. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what book you're talking about. I need to read that. Oh, I see it. Yeah, so it compares um, slavery in the United States to the Holocaust and to the caste system in India, mm. and it it's really fascinating. I really think if you really want to dive into the impact of dehumanization in any society, mm. it's really powerful. But it is a little more academic, so it's like I want to do a book club and talk to people about it because there's a lot to chew on. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to read it so we can talk yeah. about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Cool, cool. Shantae, what you got? Thank goodness. Ah, you know what? I actually just started watching on, is it on Hulu? The, the 1619, you know how they turned it yes. from mm -hmm. like the podcast to actual visuals? And I've yes. really liked it because just having that like visual component to it, because I listened to the podcast, it it's really cool. And I think they've added some things and like really given it more context to her story and everything so i mean it's worth it's worth watching for sure okay. speaking of i'm telling you guys this the person i think the person who made that is coming to utah oh I really send it to you i need to confirm before i just say this right now i'm i'm looking at my phone so i can make sure it's the right person yes an evening with nicole Hannah Jones, the creator yeah. of the project. It's at, I'm, I'm already registered. I can send it to you guys. She's coming to Weber State on March 31st. So oh I'm so glad you said that. I'm hey, writing this down. I'm right starting now. our group yeah. text up again. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, she's coming and that um, I, we have to go. Like, we, we have to show up. Yeah. So, we to, first of all, there's Black people here. Um, that's how I feel. Anytime a Black person comes to visit Utah, I'm like, right. we're here. I have to go to this event. So, yes. I want yep, to let you, you guys go. Know about that. Amen. That's awesome. All right. That's it. Yeah. Thank you so much to uh, Sean Texas. Y'all can have yes. that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, so guys. My, my middle name that I went by my whole life is Janique. So Shantae okay. and Janique, and it was like Jante or Shanique. And my mom mixed it up all the time. But I like Shantae. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> love it, love it. Oh, yeah. Thank well, you so thank much, you Alexis and Shantae from Let's Talk Sis and Sinclair Consulting. Is that correct? Yes. That's right. I love it. Got to make sure I get all the titles right. Mm -hmm. We appreciate y'all coming it. on the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. It's always a pleasure to hang out and talk with you guys. You make us feel young and fresh and <laughs> make us feel cool. I mean, we know the Black menaces. So, right? A lot right? of people get excited about that. So. I love that. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, well, we appreciate y'all. and We'll catch you next week. Thank you for joining us on the Black Menace podcast today. Make sure to follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Menaces. And make sure to subscribe to our Patreon, the Menace Society, where you can get bonus content from us on the podcast, as well as extra clips from our videos that we film. And don't forget to email us at Black Menace 
podcast at gmail.com for minutes moments or any other questions that you want us to answer because this show is for you guys thank you and remember always be a menace thank you <laughs>